Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, stay tuned for after this uh, episode so you can listen to the story that Patrice has to share with us. It's very quick, it's like a minute long, and it's relevant to what we're talking about today. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Patrice. Patrice Diamato is a nurse, author, and educator. We were just talking about how she has been a professor before, and so I was like, ah, yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, she has almost four decades of nursing experience in a variety of settings, including medical, medical surgical, critical care, geriatrics, and women's health. She has also taught nursing at the baccalaureate level for 15 years prior to returning to clinical work. Well, Patrice, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. You're a nurse and like this morning I had to go get blood work done. So that's, that's cool. <laughs> Nothing bad. I, I have psoriasis really bad and they want me to do the biologics. Is that what mm. it's called? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because everything we've tried just is not working. So they were like, oh, this is very effective. So let's try this. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> just help me. It's so itchy and it's awful. And it's like, it is. Yeah. The and heartbreak it's like, of psoriasis. Yes. I'm not kidding. It is the heartbreak of psoriasis. Yeah. It's on my elbows, like mm. my scalp. My, it's just awful. So I was just, they have to do blood work before to make sure. I don't have anything going on that could potentially be an issue. So yes, nurse, blood work, it's a good time. So Patrice, that's not why we're on here. We're not here to talk about blood work. (laughs) (laughs) You have had some experiences in the realm of something that's a very important thing right now, because we had Roe versus Wade be like overturned in the United States. And it is like, the whole country's on fire right now. (laughs) And we've had people on recently to share their abortion stories and talk about like, if this was going on when they had an abortion, they wouldn't have not been able to access it, at least in their state. And some of them have said, you know, I'm privileged enough. I could have won out of state, which, you know, now, you know, politicians are trying to fight like, Oh no, we can't let them go out of state. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. But you have had um, experiences. I would love for you to kick us off with like wherever you think is an important start for your story. Okay. So um, I I did circle back and I am working in abortion care a little bit again now. Oh, and awesome. um, I can just tell you that, yeah, with the, um, you know, with the changes that have happened with Roe versus Wade, uh, I live in a state where we accept patients, but Um, as you said, they're flying in. It's people who have money can do it. And it's, there's such a strain on the states that are receiving. So that's important to understand too, that these clinics can only take so many patients. So um, we are, we are really in a a tough state, but um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about why um, and how I got into all of this. I, um, 
I was working in an abortion clinic as a nurse um, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I have a lot of reasons for having done that. Um, it was my first foray into uh, women's health, actually, because I'm pretty much a general adult person by background. But um, I was really sick of hospitals um, and, you know, the artificial environment that it is. Mm-hmm. And I saw, you know, I was like, wow, I could work um, as a nurse practitioner. I had just graduated with my master's. So I did work in the abortion clinics um, for about eight years. And then I really did get very burnout. It's a really mm-hmm. tough place to work, as you can imagine. We talked about um, burnout and healthcare on a podcast episode earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the frustration of that, trying to do the best you can for people in circumstances that are not great. You go home every night and you think, wow, I did a really shitty job today. And you know, you didn't, you did good things, but you always focus on the things that are hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So um, I did work um, for about eight years, circled back recently um, in working with abortion patients. Um, And oddly, I started writing this book long before, about three or four years ago. So it was- Tell us what the name of your book is. Okay. It's called (laughs) The View from the Clinic. Thank you. Is Um, this um, on sale right now? It is. So it's The View from the Clinic, One Nurse's Journey in Abortion Care. It launched um, last uh, what was that Thursday? On, Ooh, uh, congratulations. I know I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I've published writing before, but never a book and never anything this personal. It was mm-hmm. always professional types of writing, but it was always something yeah. that I really cared about. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't feel motivated to just write for the sake of writing. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't want to write this. I really felt like, um, during the me too movement, yeah, I was listening to things and I had put the abortion world behind me. Honestly, I just was like, it is too fucked up. I can't. Yeah. I just can't. Um, and I needed to leave it behind and put it to rest for a little while. And I went into teaching and um, but then, you know, during the Me Too movement, I started listening to things. And I, one day I felt like my head was going to pop off my body. I'm listening to this um, politician who's making decisions about, actually, it was about uh, whether or not to tax uh, women's health products like um, tampons and, you know, pads and things like that. Yeah, of course. Honest to God, this guy said um, that he thought we shouldn't, um, we should have to pay taxes. I'm sorry. Women, these products should be taxed because women can hold their blood. He thought it was like peeing where you just like hold your blood and then you put it in the toilet and then you move on. And he just didn't understand the point. My 11 year old son knows better than that. <laughs> like, wait, what? And I looked this guy up, he's married. What, why, how does he not know this? That, you know, you can't just turn it on and off like a bladder. And something snapped in me and I said, I'm done. I, I have to, I cannot stay quiet anymore. So I started writing and I thought, you know, how am I going to get people's attention? Because no one's paying attention to all the health experts who are out there 
willingly educating the public. And I thought, oh, I know how I'll get their attention. Let me just go into like being a fly on the wall in the abortion clinic. I'm going there. I am. And I thought, yeah, you know what? People are going to listen to that because I've had friends say to me, Patty, tell me, you know, what's it like? What, what goes on? I mean, people want to know, you know, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just couldn't really articulate it clearly in like a five minute, you know, whatever conversation at the soccer field or, you know, at a party. And I was like, you know what? I need to really write this. I need to write it. I need to write these stories. The stories are, are with me. So the book mm -hmm. itself is a, it's a, what I call a mosaic novel, which is a real thing, but um, it's, and I'm a, a mosaic artist. I love to do yeah. mosaic art. Um, so, but it's a, so it's a collection of stories um, about the, the experiences that I had either as the nurse or as the patient um, that I still carry with me. There's hundreds of stories. So many of them are so, so similar that it was really easy to actually write, um, you know, write the stories because um, I was worried that, oh, you know, would it sound too much like somebody's story? And it might, but honestly, it's like, 18 people's stories that I encountered, yeah. you know, so they're all, you know, I mean, unique as, as people are unique, but from my perspective as a nurse, you know, I don't get to know people in that depth So the stories that I would hear are, you know, they're, they're stories that I heard many, many times. I, I do go into, I did decide to do some fiction and to actually develop some of those stories um, because I think people really need to understand that it, is individual. I mean, for me, I'm seeing 30 patients that day and, you know, asking their height and their weight and their allergies and all that, but there's whole stories behind it. Um, and for me as a nurse, it helps me to remind myself that each person comes with their own story that I have no idea, or I may know the tip of the iceberg about it. Mm -hmm. So it was really um, helpful for me to dig deep into these stories as I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And in abortion, like many things is highly stigmatized and anybody who's been a longtime listener of the podcast knows uh, stigma, bias, prejudice, all like stereotypes, intergroup relations. Those are things that I'm very interested. Those are my research interests, right? I'm very interested in. And one of the ways that we reduce stigma is through contact. So actually understanding. And, I, and people have heard this on the podcast before. I used to have a very different opinion about abortion like 12 years ago. And it was someone very close to me having an abortion and being afraid to tell me. And then finally, um, like coming forward to, or coming forward, it's not the right word, but finally, like, you know, telling me, um, that really broke that for me where it was like, these are not people that are strangers. These are not stereotypes. This is, this is someone very close to me who was going through a very difficult situation. And, and now that person, you know, has gone on to have other children and has a really wonderful life, but that, that would have never chances are ever came to pass had they not had an abortion, right? That would have changed their trajectory significantly. And it was getting to know someone or knowing someone who had an abortion that kind of like creaked open that door for me. And then like in the past 12 years, it's just like, it's just <laughs> now we've gone from like, 
my opinions on abortion were probably moderate to right, like right leaning opinions, where now it's like, we're way over to the left now. But a lot of people are like, you know, you get to know these people. And I think the stories are very important. Yeah, the stories of people are really it's it's what it's all about. I um and again, I was kind of like you. I wouldn't say I was right leaning, but I was like, oh, that's just someone else. I mean, and you know, even as a nurse, it's really easy to depersonalize the people that you're talking to and working with. But as I grew as a person, um, and some of the stories just they, you know, and being with people in that moment in that crazy, crazy place. I mean, abortion clinics, I say it, it's like the deli counter before Christmas. It is a swarming mass of humanity. And when I tell you, you know, you may have a preconceptions of who is there, because I thought, oh, it's like, you know, teenagers, lots and lots of teenagers and fallen mistresses. And but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's everyone, everyone. I mean, people I knew, my neighbors, you know, PTA moms, um, you name it. I have seen every single type of person in there and no one's talking about it. Like you said, how would you know that? Um, it's certainly not something that you chit chat about with your friends like, oh, what's new with you? Oh, I had an abortion on Tuesday. No, you know, and so people, um, you know, they suffer in silence. And then when they hear somebody else had an abortion, they might, they usually just clam up and they're not going to talk about theirs. So Mm -hmm. really, that is a huge goal of this is to change the conversation. I'm not looking to tell anybody what is right and wrong. And for myself, I'm not even clear what is right and wrong. I'm Mm. not clear. All I can say is that my job is to serve humanity Mm -hmm. in whatever way, shape or form it comes in the door. And I will tell you that um, there's a great study for you as a aspiring doctoral student. Are you familiar with the turnaway study? No. Oh, it's amazing. And they actually wrote a book as well. Um, So it's a massive study that they did at UCSF, and they looked at women who went to the abortion clinic to have an abortion. Some had the abortion and some were turned away for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And they followed those women, these psychologists followed these women for five years, and they compared the groups. And it's really well done research. I mean, impeccable research because they knew that they were going to have. You would have to. It'd be scrutinized (laughs) under um, a a magnifying glass. Like, and and let's be honest, research is anyways. I have a manuscript that I'm on my third journal I have um, submitted to. The first one was like, this is too niche. Like we don't do, we are more broad psychology. The second one had like some minor issues with it. And the, and the, uh, editor was like, maybe you should look for a journal that has lower expectations. And I was like, I come and I have talked to her since because she's actually somebody I was, I'm interested in working with as a, like a a doctoral student. And, And she didn't realize when I emailed her, I was the same Megan Hall. And then I was like, she was like, have you checked out blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, yeah, I, I actually submitted there and just got denied because it wasn't 
um, a good fit. And she was just like, oh my God, I just looked at that this weekend and I'm so sorry, but like, I have to look at hundreds of these. And I was just like, you know what? It's okay. Like, I think you could have went about it a little nicer, but like, you know, it's okay. So like, yeah, they scrutinize. Oh, yes. What are you doing? A lot of um, journals now are leaning towards open access research to where like you put it on a repository or is it repository? I think that's yeah. what it's called. And um you people need to be able to access your data and your script so they can run it and confirm that yes you did actually do what you said you were going to do and so and people don't realize how highly scrutinized normal everyday research is and then you add like a whole ass like very you know highly politicized <laughs> thing. And then now you're going to add like an extra magnifying glass. Uh-huh. So they did. And um, they did this study. It was a massive study um, in very like in high regard. NPR did a whole thing on it, but it's called the Turnaway Study. And exactly what you're talking about, Megan, they found that women who had, they compared the women who had the abortion with the women who did not. And it's exactly as you're talking about with your friend, the outcomes for the women in the long run who had the abortion um, in terms of uh, overall happiness, financial security, being able to provide for the children that they had Mm -hmm. um, was massively larger. Now for the women who had the child, it's important to say that these women love their children. They mm-hmm. love their children. It's not, it's not um, any regret in that way, because of course, if you have a baby, you're going to bond and connect with it. Um, but they do struggle far more um, in the long run. So, yep, that's, they it's a big difference. played out the data. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it is a variety of reasons people have an abortion. That's where, this is where I have an issue is these laws are so like so black and white and there's so much gray area, right? So they're like, nope, nope, we're not doing any abortions after this time. Well, what about this person who like, I was just reading one where this woman, uh, the, the fetus started to develop a tumor and they were monitoring, they were monitoring, hoping like it would improve. Well, the fetus was going to suffer if it was born, if they, if they made it to 40 weeks, cause they were like, you're, you're probably going to be in some major health crisis before that happens, because now it's sucking nutrients at like a higher rate. And a lot of things were going wrong. And I was just reading this story on Facebook and I was just like, so what about that? Like, wouldn't that be an exception? And they're like, oh yes, it would. I'm like, but your law doesn't say that. So guess what's going to happen? Healthcare providers are not going to provide an abortion care for that because they could be sued. Like, Absolutely. Because if if the, the law doesn't explicitly state all of the exceptions, now healthcare providers can't because they're going to- They can't. They can't. And so like when people start passing these laws- now they're making a very gray issue into a very black and white issue, right? Like it, it was so much better when we could say, okay, after viability, which people don't even realize is quite a ways into a pregnancy before a fetus is viable. Um, 
after viability, now we have these certain criteria you have to meet. Cool. All right. I can be with you on that. But when you're passing these very black and white laws, it's no, (laughs) you just don't know. Because when you ask her, like pushing all these questions with them, well, what about this particular case? Oh, no, that case. Yeah, I'm totally for an abortion in that case. Okay, but your law does not cover that abortion. So it's just, it's too much. It is way too much. Mm -hmm. And right now talking to some of, you know, the people in the field right now, I only work with women um, who've had an abortion, who are calling me on a hotline um, to get some, you know, advice and care. And, um, you know, I really like doing that. But the people right now in the hospital, they're sitting there watching until it's gruesome. It's, it's, gruesome. They're watching a woman with a dead baby in her and they can't do anything. It's, um, it, yeah, it, it, you know, talk about burnout. You know, you talk about going home at night and thinking I am doing, I am, what I'm doing is, is criminal, you know, yeah. it's just criminal. And to watch a woman suffer like that and you're just standing there you know with your hands behind your back a lot of medical students are really really upset too because and nursing students too they're not taught much about abortion in medical and nursing school i loved doing it i um, would be invited to the women's health course and i would talk about abortion and contraception and um you know my director was a very devout catholic older lady and she she was sort of like, I don't think this is a good topic. And meanwhile, the students are so needing it. Abortion care is, it's a specialty. It's not difficult for sure. It's a pretty straightforward procedure all the way down the line. But if you're not taught it and you don't know, um, it's really frustrating. So I've had a lot of physicians calling me. This is just sad. Um, I'll send a patient to the ER. And then the providers are calling me saying, well, what do we do? You know, she's soaking through pads. She's, you know, passing claws. We see on the ultrasound X, Y, and Z. And I have to tell them what to do. And they're like, are you a physician? And I say, no, but I know what you've got to do. And especially, you know, they're crossing state lines. I had a woman who she just had a little thing that she needed taken care of. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And I said, um, oh, well, we'll just bring in the clinic. Well, no big deal. We can take care of that. And she said, yeah, no, I just drove 12 hours from Texas. So I have a mirror and you tell me what to do. And I was <gasps> like, shit, shit. This is what's happening. You know, you can wow. go have your abortion. That's all fine and good, but go home and have a little problem. Your ER doesn't know how to take care of you. Um, you know, you call the clinic and we'd like to bring you back for sure. But, you know, the what it took to get there is it's just it's just not tenable right now. It's just crazy that I mean, and I've heard where in some of these states, doctors are having to call their lawyers to say, like, this person is dying. Can I provide this care to them and having to wait to provide care until their lawyer says, actually, yes. It is, it is safe under the law for you to provide care for them or hearing, no, it's not. You have to let this person die. Like, I I can't even imagine what kind of mental 
like strain that is like it, we will i mean we'll be fortunate if if doctors are not walking away with like some severe mental health problems from this and i don't mean that in a mean way i have bipolar disorder okay so i'm not judging right. um but like I mean that truly because tra- that's trauma and trauma contributes to mental illness. Like there is a very strong relationship there. Like we'll be lucky if m- medical providers are not walking away with some really serious mental health and physical health issues from this. They are, they are for sure. And just coming off of COVID and then coming into this, you mm-hmm. can't provide good care, you know, competent, proficient care. And so when your hands are tied like that, it really does put you in complete moral distress. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of mental health issues. Um, You know, similar, and I am not sure that I got this from a reliable source, but I believe it, similar to combat veterans. So this is what we're getting in healthcare with um, providers who are in, you know, this moral dilemma that just really does shut them down completely into a mental health nightmare. So yeah, we're looking at a mental health crisis among providers for a variety of reasons right now. It's really, yeah, it's just so sad. And people are walking away from the medical industry because it's just too much. Right, right. And it's just so senseless because this is not a complicated, um, medical procedure, it's super easy, you know, now, and I will say now there's a lot of, you know, people are going and they're all excited and happy and women are excited about medical abortions. And I am too. I think that's great. And I deal with a lot of patients who undergo medical abortion. But my concern again is it's the post-procedure care. Um, You know, people do sometimes retain placenta or retain parts or have clots, and they do need to have um, dilatation and evacuation sometimes um, for complications. It, it happens. And so I'm very worried about that person who's, you know, not of a high socioeconomic status, who's sitting somewhere having these issues. They're going to have to get somewhere, you know, maybe their local ER if they're lucky. And for a lot of people, that's six hours away. Mm-hmm. So I'm super concerned about um, being able to care for women post-abortion, post-medical abortion, people who are taking their pills at home, which is fine. And I do talk a fair amount about that in the book. I focused most of my stories on people who are in the clinic having a surgical or an in-clinic abortion, because that was the bulk of my experience in being able yeah. to talk about the people that I saw. Um, but there are, you know when you talk about medical abortion and you, you just think about some of these people that are, um, you know, they don't have real access and they're kind of told, oh, this is super easy. You just take this pill and then, you know, take your ibuprofen and, you know, get your heating pad and you'll be fine. Well, they probably will be 90% of the time they're fine. And really what they really need is they need to be able to ask their questions because, you know, people are scared. You're sitting in your own bathroom taking these pills. You know, we need to have more support for people. It's not just as simple as taking a couple pills and it just goes away because you really are laboring. It's labor. I had a miscarriage. 
which is a spontaneous abortion. That is the yeah. medical term for it. So it's the same process, basically. And let me tell you, I knew what was going on, and I was still crying on the floor with cramps and alone, and it was awful, and like I said, lonely, and you're scared, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have all of that to deal with as well. It's not just a quick answer, unfortunately. You need and, health care. Yeah, and some women are actually being... Um, scrutinized when they have a miscarriage about like, did you, did you cause this? Yep. It, were you responsible for this or did this? We are at that point in some States, women have to worry about having a miscarriage because now there could be legal repercussions for having a miscarriage. If they're not sure if you actually had a miscarriage or you took a pill and, you know, right. had an abortion. Right. Well, patients ask me that all the time, long before all of the restrictions came in place, too. And I'd say, listen, you know, you really need to follow up. I, I want to send you to the ER or I want to send you to your own gynecologist. And they always ask, you know, will they know? Can they tell? And, you know, my answer is always the same. It's, you know, well, first of all, it would be really nice if they have a provider they can trust. And yeah. so I usually start with that. Do you feel comfortable telling your provider or no? And a lot of times it's no. And that doesn't matter whether it's legal or otherwise. Even in the most blue state around, there are a variety of reasons why people don't want to tell anyone. Um, Shame and, and stigma. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they, I do have some who are like, I love my gynecologist, but if I tell them I had an abortion, they are going to hate me and I won't get good care. And that's sad. And I usually say, we'll try to find someone new, but you know what? There just aren't that enough providers to go around that yeah. are all that wonderful, right? You know how long it takes to get a routine GYN appointment, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware. I had some issues last year and uh, my PCM was like, all right, I'm going to send you to, you know, a gynecologist so they can check it out. Come to find out. I just have a lot of scar tissue. I had three C-sections. I have a lot of scar tissue and it's causing issues. And they're like, we could do a surgery to take it out, but it'll probably grow back. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> we are not doing an additional surgery. So just leave it. I will just deal with the like really horrible uh, period cramps. Like it's fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, like it took me quite a while to get in with that gynecologist. Like what if I had had something more serious wrong with me? Right. I mean, they try to triage, but even routine things. And the most frustrating part of all, Megan, that drives me nuts is, you know, how many people just want to get that nice routine. They want to, you know, they want to be sexually active with their partner and they're planning ahead. Oh, and we can see you in three months to put you on the pill. Well, what are we doing? You know, then they get pregnant in the meantime because a condom broke or. Yeah, that's you know, how I got my 19 year old daughter. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, even plan B. Okay. That's great. But that is also, so everybody went out and ran out, bought plan B and there's supply chain issues and all that. So, so we're just perpetuating such an impossible situation for young women today. It's impossible. You know, you want to do the right thing and how are you, you know, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to get on the pill. I'd like an IUD. I'd like, well, no, you're going to have to wait for that. And if you get pregnant, oops, it's, you know, it's almost like forced pregnancy at this point. Yeah. It's crazy. 
It's during that waiting period for me to start birth control that I got pregnant with my oldest daughter. <laughs> right? From a broken condom, mind you. And uh, I mean, I was a teenager too, but I I was I was fortunate that not only was I fortunate I was allowed to make a decision, uh, but I was also fortunate that my family, my mom and I have a horrible relationship. But one thing I can give her is she was very supportive during my pregnancy for me to make the decisions. And even my OBGYN, I remember going to see him. I was really scared. And I mean, cause I'm 16 and um, I'm really scared. And I, and he goes to me, do you, do you know what you want to do? Do you know your options? And I'm like, I do know my options. I don't know what to do. And he was like, if you're comfortable, I would like to do a sonogram in case you decide to have Cause I didn't know, like, I wasn't like, no, I want an abortion. I was just like, I don't know. I'm scared. And he was like, let's do a sonogram. Just check it out. And, um, I ended up deciding to have my daughter, but to have that OBGYN say to a scared 16 year old girl, like I'm here, like, what do you want to do? What is your decision? Like, and, and asking me, like, do you want to see a sonogram? Like he didn't force me. He was not like, we're doing a sonogram. He was just like, do you, can, can we do this? Is that okay with you? Are you comfortable with that? And, and I'm, I'm glad he did. Cause then we knew like my daughter was okay. And she was, you know, we knew how far along I was too. I mean, I lived in New York, so that was not as big of a deal as like some other places, but to me being in that situation, I was so fortunate to have people who supported whatever decision I wanted to make. And a lot of people don't have that support. Right, right. That's so true. And what's really interesting is the whole concept of being an emancipated minor. And I have a really poignant story in the book about that um, because that has huge implications for everybody. So, And when I went and did a talk, this is also a chapter in the book of, of going and talking to high school students one time. And the students asked, you know, they said, well, you know, do I have to get our parents' consent? And I said, well, that varies state to state. Yep. Here, you're an emancipated minor. And they were like, wait a minute. So I can make my abort, I can make my own choice about having an abortion, but I have to have my parents sign for me to get my ears pierced. And I was like, uh, yeah, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get a tattoo, but I can have an abortion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's just, you know, because of the history of the way you know, the laws evolved, which is, you know, it's, it's what it is. And it can be really good. Um, I'll tell you the person who that's really stressful for is the parent. So mm-hmm. many's the parent. And I do allude to have, like I said, a, a kind of, I mean, some of the stories are actually even sort of funny, if you can believe that this is not a completely serious book. There are times when things that happen that are just so funny, because it's just, you know, it's life. It's, yeah. it's everything. It's not always heavy and dramatic, not at all. But um, sometimes the people I feel super sorry for are parents who's, you know, 14 year old says, Oh, I'm having this baby. Well, guess who's raising that baby? Yeah. My um, mom helped me immensely in the first couple of years after having my daughter. Yeah. Right, immensely. Right. Yeah. And so this, you know, this rebellious teen is like, I'm having this baby. And the mom is like, you are not. And I am the nurse saying, 
uh, you guys need to go home and talk some more. We are not doing anything here. Yeah. Because she is an emancipated minor. This is her decision. And, uh, and I, I really feel for the parent. I have, you know, I have kids and you know, when a kid makes up their mind, that's it. I have a 19 year old right now and uh, the girl, I swear she is hell bent on having a baby. And I'm like, please, no, please, please don't right now. Please one. Cause I'm still in my thirties and two, cause my mom was a teen mom. I was a teen mom. So like, let's break the cycle. And also because I'm like, there's a good chance I could end up having to care for this child like give me some time okay let me finish my phd (laughs) right that's exactly it i prayed the whole time my kids were teenagers i just kept praying because it is their decision um and yet you don't have a whole lot of say but you do have a lot of responsibility probably more than and definitely more than the father Right. Right. It could be very that's kind of like variable how that works. But if you are a parent to this pregnant child, it is, you know, your responsibility as well. Yeah. And the father is probably going to, as a teenager and even a young adult, pay nothing or pay very little in child support. I received twenty five dollars a month. For a year, I mean, for pretty much her entire, like entire life, um, because every time he'd get a new job and I was just like, oh, I'm going to take him back and get more. He'd like get fired or quit or what. And eventually I just gave up because I'm like, whatever. But like that didn't even cover diapers when she was a baby. Oh, and oh here my, my, my mom was having to help me be able to support this child. Right. And it was just. And then I had to, I, I, I received welfare benefits as a young adult because like, I'm a single mom trying to make it work. And I was going to college at the time that didn't work out. Um, but, <laughs> um, and it's like welfare is stigmatized too. So here I am swiping my EBT card and some people behind me are judging me and making comments. And I'm just like, I am trying to support a child that I had at a very young age and I'm doing this all by myself. <laughs> right. 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 It's just, it's just such a vicious cycle. And, and the world that we live in right now, I, I didn't really imagine that when I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. So I started writing, you know, during me too, which was, was that like 2017, 2018, 2016, I think was it was it right around early? the time Trump got elected. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I started, so May, it was 2016 or 2017, but it was, yeah, really yeah, close yeah. Election. yeah. Yeah. So I started writing my stories and, you know, kept writing. And then, you know, the writing process is just really intense. Writing is fine. It's that like then really refining it, editing it. Um, And I had never done writing like that before, Mm -hmm. but um, I wrote and I kept writing and and then the pandemic came and I kept writing, but I really didn't know the state of abortion, what it would be Mm -hmm. when I wrote this. Um, I did not know that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. That's just crazy. So I was yeah. in, you know, talking to, um, you know, the self, I self-published, but I used a, a team that helped me. And they, you know, when I pitched the idea for the book, they were kind of like, oh, oh, abortion. Uh, all right. Uh, I guess that's fine. And I was like, you know, I think the shit's going to hit the fan. 
and yeah. nobody really believed me because at that point, then I started working for them again. I actually went to my um, friends in abortion care and I said, you guys read this rough draft because I wrote it about 20 years ago and I want it to be very um, confidential. Like these are real stories, but, and I don't want anyone hurt to remember their stories, you know? Yeah. Like I said, there were composite stories mostly, but there were specific things. And I really wanted to be clear to protect the patients that I saw. How can you write a memoir about people and really be, you know, careful and concerned for their privacy? And this is the problem with healthcare in general. Nurses, doctors, we hold stories and we cannot tell anyone mm-hmm. our stories. So I was, I really wanted to do this in a way that was um, honoring people. And I thought, well, okay, let's let 20, 25 years pass. And now I can tell some stories um, because you, you just, you can't and you have to hold them. So I, I think, um, you know, they looked at my work. They looked at my rough draft and they, we changed some things, quite a few things um, to de-identify people um, because they remembered the stories too. And they said, Patty, I cannot believe you um, actually remember all this stuff. And I said, yeah, I know. (laughs) I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, So being able to do that though, and being able to write from a safe place 20 years later was critically important to me. People have to hear the stories, but how do you tell the stories, you know, without, um, you know, taking away someone's trust or privacy. So the stories are, are from my view, um, mostly. And then the fictionalized stories are also from my view, because as a person, as a young woman, I had experiences and similar to you, you know, had a friend who went through a really an intense, abortion experience and didn't even know she had ever had sex because she was date raped. Oh, right. So yeah. she's like, no, I'm a virgin. I don't know how that I, I'm not pregnant. I've never had sex before. And it was like, well, so I did wake up one day with my panties across the room at some part. Oh shit. Yeah. So, you know, so some of those stories, I incorporate some of the things that I just know from my own life, but, but being able to tell it, it, we have to, we need to, like you said, being able to normalize it is really my goal for, for why I wrote what I did. And then, you know, when Roe versus Wade hit the fan and I was like, oh shit, I'm right around the time when I'm going to be publishing this book very so relevant it, it was really really like synchronicity plus I and I was really worried about the political climate and what it would mean for me telling this because these stories aren't gonna sway somebody who already believes one way or the other yeah you I have to think. they have to have a little kernel of doubt a little it, kernel Right, exactly. And, you know, even for people who are hardcore, you know, pro-choice people, some of this is not comfortable. It's not. It's not pretty. It's not like you're, you know, the healthcare heroes are wearing a cape in there and you come out and you're saved. It's not Mm -hmm. like that. It's right. You know, we're messy. Life is messy. And it's there are I really believe that we take away sometimes the opportunity to mourn this really shitty experience that just happened to us 
Um, I think in healthcare, we do tend to whitewash things so that mm-hmm. people can feel like we feel better, right? I'm saving, I'm giving you a new lease on life um, without really going down deep with patients. And we just don't have time. But I, I think we're doing a disservice if we whitewash it as a lot of people are, you know, especially not healthcare providers, but a lot of friends who are so, you know, rah, rah, pro-choice, pro-abortion, that they're kind of missing what I'm hoping to get at with the book is to, to just honor the experience for the good and the bad and the sad mm-hmm. and the funny and just the messiness of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. It's like, right. We, we share stories about the messiness of life and all aspects. And I tell people like, if you can think of a category, we probably discussed it unless it's something that I'm hell bent against. Like there are certain topics I am just not covering. Like, right. There are certain types of people that are just never going to come on this podcast because like, I don't want you traumatizing like in a, in a bad way, right. Tra- not like this traumatizing, but like people who will be very judgmental of my audience, yes. you know, right. you, you know, where I'm going with that, right. Like oh, people, yeah. people who will say things who will hurt my audience and, and right. not to me, those, those stories will never be on here. I, I had some, I have had some, uh, email pitches where I'm just like reading and they're telling me these things that their, their, uh, client could talk about. And I'm like, you're high. You never, like, you're not even familiar with what we talk about coming on my podcast (laughs) because this person's a woman. You think that no hard pass. Thank you very much. We had somebody pitch, um, an evangelistic pasture. And uh, somebody who is a big supporter of an organization that's very LGBTQ. And I'm a bisexual woman. So I'm just like, oh, you missed the mark on that one. (laughs) No. So yeah, there's, that's the whole point of the podcast, right? To share stories and experiences. So people can see the mess and 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 understand in ways I I have people who have listened to this podcast podcast since probably the very beginning. It's been going for like six years. It was born six years ago. Um, it's been listening for almost six years, and they're like, I learned something new every episode. Like even if I've never had those experiences, I learned something new. I come away with something. That's the point. I want you to come away with something, right? right. So. Patrice, as we wrap up the podcast, because the time goes by super fast, Mm -hmm. uh, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? I think, you know, if I, if I could just say anything, it's just um, dive deep, you know, dive deep, dive deep, walk in someone else's shoes as much as you can, because that's how you're going to gain so much wisdom for yourself in being able to inform your worldview. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to know it all. Um, But just, and for me personally, Patrice, walk a mile in my shoes. Because this book is ultimately about being a nurse and the struggles that we go through, whether it's in abortion care or anything else. It's my story and it's my gift to you to sort of see things from that different point of view. It is a different perspective, right? On the podcast, we have had 
people share their own abortion stories, but this is the first time I've had someone who is on the other side, right? That's providing these and um, hearing your experience of like, this is the horrific shit that we are dealing with right now. Like as providers, as, you know, people working in the medical field. So I appreciate so much your perspective, Patrice. It's been wonderful talking to you. So thank you for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Walking today, I saw a boarded up nursing home and it reminded me of my first nursing job. I was 16 and worked as a nursing aide. My second day on the job, they assigned me the most horrific case of my career, a man with a gangrenous leg that his family refused to amputate. I walked into his room and promptly dry heaved at the smell. His lower half was exposed, the blackened leg with fetid pools of liquid pus alongside his shriveled and frightening penis, the first one I had ever seen. The staff, grim-faced, explained that his family refused to allow the amputation that would save his life. This is what's happening, folks. With these abortion bans in place for removing non-viable fetuses, they are necrotizing in the womb, and medical staff must wait until the mom gets seriously infected until they're permitted to remove it. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.